Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis. I'm a marriage and family therapist and licensed professional counselor trained in trauma and addiction. The Asking Why podcast is for anyone on a journey of healing and restoration. If you are searching for answers to life's questions and want to learn more about root causes from a psychological and theological mix, this show is for you. In this podcast, myself and a co-host from Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness will interview guests on a wide range of topics in order to get down to the heart of the problems facing our world and understand why things happen and how to change the world and ourselves for the better. Want to learn more tips and tricks to living a healthy lifestyle? Visit us at Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to meet our staff or book a speaker, go to clintdaviscounseling.com. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe today. Putman Restoration is a proud sponsor of the Asking Why podcast. Putman Restoration specializes in commercial disaster services, including water damage, fire, smoke, mold, and storm. Their goal and desire is to get your properties up and running as soon as possible after disaster strikes. Hospitals, schools, hotels, and large municipal buildings, malls, churches, and large commercial properties are their specialty. Manage properties nationwide? No problem. Putman Restoration services their clients nationwide. They are strategically partnered with elite restoration companies throughout the U.S. and Canada, giving their clients resources during disasters where normal companies would be tapped out. Trust the professionals at Putman Restoration when disaster strikes. Visit them online at www.putmanrestoration.com or give them a call at 318-453-5029. Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clinton Davis, and I have Dr. Amy Moore with me today. So I'm going to read her a little bio. Dr. Amy Moore is a cognitive psychologist and a child development specialist with more than 25 years of experience in developmental and psychoeducational assessment, curriculum development, teacher education, program evaluation, and cognitive research. She has a master's degree in early childhood education, a PhD in psychology, with a concentration in educational psychology, cognitive, and quantitative research. And if that's not enough, in addition to overseeing science and research for Learning Rx, She also serves as VP of Research for the Gibson Institute of Cognitive Research, where her groundbreaking brain training and assessment research has been published in peer-reviewed medical and psychological journals and presented at conferences around the country. She is a former child development specialist, education administrator, and teacher of teachers with a PhD in psychology and a master's degree in early childhood education. Thank you so much for coming on here with all of that. So we're going to get into some good stuff. And that's not even all of that. I know, I'm sure. I know. I'm a board-certified Christian counselor, licensed pastor, working on my second doctorate, this one in ministry. Goodness gracious. So Busy. We, so we connected. Uh, what was our first connection? Was it the Brainy Moms thing? No. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yeah, because uh, Denisa connected us for Brainy Mom for Learning Rx. Yep. Yes, because so, I'm the host of the Brainy Moms podcast. That's right. You also do that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I sleep occasionally. Yeah. That's what people ask me. Like, what do you do? You know, I'm like, oh, just try to keep it between the navigational beacons. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Well, tell my listeners a little bit about you and your story and how did you become who you are in some some ways? Yeah. So um, my undergrad was in psychology and I originally had planned to just go on to grad school and become a psychologist. And Um, I didn't know where I wanted to go. And so I took a job right after graduation uh, working uh, with preschoolers um, and fell in love working with young children. 
and decided, hey, maybe this is the area that I want to be in. And so instead of going to grad school for psychology, I went to grad school for uh, early childhood education. And so I was in that space for about 10 years, um, worked as a curriculum specialist for Air Force Child Development Youth Programs, uh, did some teaching in the classroom and really um, and, and was training teachers the whole time as well. And I thought, hey, we're doing everything right in terms of how we are implementing curriculum, but we're missing something. Mm. There are kids that are still struggling. And so I kind of had amassed this stack of, hey, I should do some research on that someday, uh, particularly around ADHD. Um, and so I said, okay, I should have gone and <laughs> become a psychologist right away. Um, and so I finally went back and did that. Um, so it just took 10 years to kind of make yeah. that little segue full circle. Yeah. Um, and really, um, at the same time, the Lord had put on my heart um, to be in ministry as well. And so I kind of ignored him and said, yeah, okay. Um, You're like, I'm not and, going to Nineveh. Right. I'm like, this is the plan, <laughs> Lord. This is the plan. I am going to be a cognitive psychologist and figure out what we're missing um, with struggling learners um, and, you know, kids with neurodiverse brains. And so I did that and have been working in that space now um, since about 2010 and um, then listening to that nudge. Uh, from the Lord as well. And so I'm bivocational now. So okay. I spend um, I spend 20 hours a week uh, for Learning RX, which is the largest network of cognitive training centers in the world. And we can talk more about uh, brain training. And then I spend the other half of my week um, doing Christian counseling. And I'm the care and counseling pastor um, at a church in Larkspur, Colorado, and just really ministering to hurting hearts and minds. Um, yeah. And finally said, yes, Lord. That's right. That. So so what got you into that? Give me kind of before going to school. What? Tell me your testimony as far as like, you know, faith and, and how did, were your parents Christian? Were you always in church? What? How did that play out, if you don't mind? Yes, yeah, so I grew up in the church. Um, my mom actually ran the school associated with the church. Um, and so if the doors were open, we were there, right? And I'm from the South, so you know how that looks. Yeah. Um, so Sunday morning, Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday night, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so I, you know, I participated in, um, anything that you could do choir, handbell choir, right? Like everything, um, at the church. And so, um, it was, um, just what you did, right? Did I have a personal relationship with Jesus? Um, no. I didn't, right? I mm -hmm. went to church. I believed in God. That was the extent, really, of my faith um, until um, probably 2006 um, when I we moved to Colorado, and I had a friend, a neighbor that I had met, and we were having coffee. And so she said, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? And I said, well, I grew up in the church. And she goes, that's not what I asked. <laughs> right? And those words were very foreign to me. Right. Like, what does that mean? Do I have a personal relationship with Jesus? I didn't understand the question. Mm -hmm. um, so it was absolutely fascinating that I had gone. I grew up Presbyterian. I did walk away from the Lord um, for about six years. I had a crisis of faith when my dad died. Um, but when I when I did How kind of open up then? that curiosity. 
I was 31. Oh, man. Yeah, it was. Um, do you want to hear what happened? Yes, yeah, so I do want to hear that. Yeah, tell me as much as you want to share. Yeah, so I think those um, things are, I mean, I think that's what people listen for is, you know, especially people with credentials and people who do what they do, you know, uh, there's twofold that I want people to hear. One is, you know, your motivation for what you're doing and that, you know, and to see that God is good and that he motivates things and pushes things and changes things through hardship. And also for them to realize that whatever they got going on, it's not the end of their story. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah, so my dad um, died from metastatic melanoma um, in my arms. Mm. And right after he, so in the months that he was going through chemotherapy, um, we spent a lot of time talking about the Lord. And I had given him a book by Max Lucado uh, called When God Whispers Your Name. And so my dad had grown up in the church, but he hadn't been going. And he thought, well, it's too late for me. And so those conversations looked like, Dad, it's never too late. Right. Right? The Lord has his arms open. And so he um, asked uh, for communion the day before he died, accepted the Lord again in his heart. It was really very beautiful. Wow. And so he died in my arms. And within moments, oh, I, I missed a very important part of that story. He was terrified to die. Uh -huh. He was always terrified of dying. And so part of that conversation was, you know, what is heaven going to look like mm -hmm. and how you, you won't be in pain. And right, like it's kind of a win-win. You beat the cancer and you live a while longer on this earth or you don't beat the cancer and you get to be with Jesus. Mm -hmm. But those were those conversations. And he died. And within moments... I didn't realize this at the time, what was happening to me, but within moments, the enemy whispered to me, what if there is no heaven? Mm -hmm. And I panicked, panicked. What had I done? I had convinced my dad that it was okay. Like it was okay because he was going to go and be with Jesus in heaven. And if there's no heaven, then there must be no God. And if there's no God, where's my dad? Yeah. And instead of leaning into my faith instead of seeking wise counsel i panicked and i walked away from the lord for six years mm. just walked away shut it down and so it was pure curiosity that kind of brought me back right the lord has this way of surrounding you with people who um are the hands and feet of jesus without even saying the name of jesus sometimes mm. right and so it's well kind and of you can walk away but that doesn't mean he did right I mean, that's the beautiful thing about it is like, you know, we can, we can go, Oh, I don't believe this for a while or I, I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to do the things, but that doesn't change his perspective of us. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I was having these conversations with this neighbor, um, and she had given me a book by Francine rivers called redeeming love. Mm -hmm. Um, and I read it in one sitting. It's a, that book yes. and I read it in one sitting. I finish it at 2 a.m. and I'm sobbing and I'm like, of course there's a God. What was I thinking? <laughs> right. And so I call her up at 630 the next morning and I said, hey, can I come to church with you on Sunday? And um, so we go to this mega church, non-denominational mega church. Um, and I felt something like in my body while I was there. And while when we were driving um, home, I said, I don't know what it was that I was feeling, but I just felt in my body something happening to me. 
And she said, well, that was the Holy Spirit. What? What was that? Right? Like these are, these are words that I did not hear in the Presbyterian church growing up. Mm -hmm. I just didn't hear, well, yeah, the presence of the Holy Spirit right there or personal relationship with Jesus. I had not heard that. And so my curiosity was so piqued that I just dug in. I dug in. And the more I dug in, the more I could hear the Lord's voice. And so, um, yeah, I got water baptized in 2007. And um, the rest was, here I am. That's awesome. And so that led you into, were you doing the psychology stuff then? Uh, no, I was still uh, working in the child development field. Okay. Um, at the time. And so it was about 2009 when I felt the Lord stirring something gotcha. in me um, about counseling and ministry. And um, so when I initially went uh, to get my PhD in psychology, I was thinking, okay, well, I will go into counseling. And something happened. I got grabbed by the research um, and I kind of just took off in that direction and ignored that stirring from mm -hmm. the Lord. And so it wasn't until um, probably about four years ago that I started taking him seriously that, um, hey, this is where I want you. Yeah. And, um, and, and Learning Rx is a Christian company. And so I feel like I've been in ministry, you know, for nearly 10 years. Yeah. Um, what was, what's the special thing about Learning Rx? Kind of how did you get into that and what, what what was the push for that? Because it's a it's a, yeah, it's a it's a very I think under what's the word uh, people don't know about it. I mean I think in yeah. our culture I send people to ours all the time here. Um, yeah. So what 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 is about it is so special to you and what kind of pushed you in that direction? Yeah. Uh, so I was writing a paper on neuroplasticity in children and. Um, my youngest child's best friend um, is the grandson of the founder of Learning Rx, mm. Dr. Ken Gibson. And um, at the time, his mom was the vice president of development and of R&D. And so I called her up and I said, hey, I'm running this paper on neuroplasticity. I'm intrigued by what you do. Can I come interview you? And so I went over to her house and uh, she just pulls out all of these interesting um brain exercises and she's like let me just show you what we do that's the best way mm -hmm. to show you neuroplasticity and i was hooked hooked in fact i wrote the paper called her up and said i have a few more questions can i come back over i come back over she shows me even more exercises um and that was that was it i, I said i want to be part of what you're doing um this is what we were missing yeah as teachers and educators. And so uh, that's how that started. That's awesome. And that was in two, 2000, about 2013, 2014. So to lay the groundwork for that, what do you think, if, if you're an average person listening to this, you don't know what Learning Rx is, what are some of the things that you, you would want people to know, just kind of top three to five things that can set the tone for kind of the rest of our conversation? Um, so, I like to say that we are not stuck with the cognitive cards we've been dealt. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is if we have cognitive skills, those are the skills that we use for thinking and learning all day, every day. Skills like memory, 
uh, speed of processing, um, the way we visualize things, how well we reason, um, how well we pay attention. Those are cognitive skills. And so um, a lot of us have weak cognitive skills and weaknesses in one or more of those skills are really the root cause of learning struggles, mm. are the root cause of why we can't think fast enough, why we're underperforming um, at school, at work, um, on the baseball field, right? So the exciting thing about our brains is um, they're plastic, right? It's a term called neuroplasticity, and that means that our brains can change with intense targeted experience. Mm. And so <clears throat> learning our X does just that. And so we target um, and train, we remediate and strengthen those skills that are weak. And so when we can do that, then we can see changes in the classroom at work right? on the baseball diamond. Yeah. And that's for anybody. Absolutely. I mean, we have, we have clients that are age four and we have clients that are age 99. Mm -hmm. the brain is plastic. Right. And so I think that's a, you know, just neurology in general, right? The study of the brain and understanding all of those things is, is super new, you know, 30 years old, you know, I mean, in the deep way we studied, I mean, we've been looking at it forever, but um, how long has Learning RX been around? So Dr. Gibson started um, creating brain training exercises in the 1980s. Okay. So he was a pediatric eye doctor and specialized in vision therapy. And he was helping uh, patients with dyslexia. That was his primary uh, patient load. Right. And so he was doing these vision therapy exercises with them. And he said, I think we're missing something here, right? That this is, these dyslexia struggles are more than just a visual processing disorder. Mm -hmm. And so he started doing some research on well, what else is going on um, in the, in the brains of these kids who are struggling um, to read and to learn. And so he said, I think there are some auditory issues as well. So he started creating exercises that would remediate um, weak auditory processing skills or the way that we manipulate sounds in the English language. And so, or any language for that matter. Um, and so he would, he would add these exercises and he was seeing even better results. And then he said, okay, what else do we need to look at? And so at the time, um, the Cattell-Horn-Carroll theory of cognition was just coming on board as like the primary um, theory of intelligence. And it's mm -hmm. the basis of all major intelligence IQ tests. And so he said, well, if IQ tests are testing memory and processing speed and attention and reasoning, then that must mean that those skills are responsible for thinking and learning and cognition and intelligence. Mm -hmm. So can we remediate each of those? And so he worked, his brother was a clinical psychologist. And so the two of them worked together to just create exercise after exercise that was targeting each of these different cognitive skills that are part of intelligence. And so before you know it, they had a whole program. Wow. And so <clears throat> they were licensing at that point um, other psychologists, occupational therapists, speech and language therapists, clinicians to use the program in their practices. 
And so, um, you know, at one point there were about 400 clinicians around the country that were using the original program. It was called PACE. And we still have about 300 clinicians that use that in their private practices. Wow. But now <clears throat> we're in um, 37 countries. That's wild. Yeah. And if you, yeah. if you guys are interested in learning RX, uh, Denisa Walker came on and did, we did a whole podcast specifically on learning RX. So if you want more dive into that more specifics, you can check that episode out. <clears throat> um, so let's shift gears for a second. One of the things that I know comes up a lot is this conversation about, um, when it comes to learning and brains is, is ADHD. And one, what is your opinion about the shift in there being more people diagnosed with it. Um, and how do we find the balance? Right? Because I feel like we missed it for years. It was an issue. Kids got neglected. And now I feel like we've swung over to the side of over diagnosing it and missing some other newer root causes based on a bunch of things. But I want to hear your opinion about it. Yeah. So I have a pretty strong opinion about it. <laughs> <laughs> I like strong opinions. Okay. Um, I would like to say um, that we have more <clears throat> children being diagnosed and more adults, for that matter, being diagnosed with ADHD because we've raised awareness. That's what I'd like to say. And in part, that may with, be a little true, right? Yes. The problem with raising awareness, right, is that then we begin to see it everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's the like same we, thing with gaslighting or yes. trauma or, you know, any of the other things that we've Instagram populated that now everybody has. So yes, you're definitely right. There's a, there's a risk of not having a holistic view and then saying, oh, well, I have these two things and so that's me. Absolutely. And in America, we have a tendency to attach pathology to the uh, extreme ends of normal. Mm -hmm. And so instead of saying, hey, is that behavior that I'm seeing, is that because my child needs connection, right? Is that what that behavior is? Mm -hmm. Because all behavior is communicating something, yep. right? And many times it's communicating, hey, I need to feel connected. Um, but here's where I see um, the breakdown. In addition to us wanting to, to pathologize normal behavior that's just on the extreme end of normal, um, I think that teachers are struggling in the classrooms. And so when they are struggling with some extreme end of normal behaviors, they then say to the parents, um, I think you need to have your child tested. Here's what I'm seeing in the classroom. It looks like ADHD to me. And then parents go, okay, we'll talk with our pediatrician. Pediatrician says, yes, that's consistent with some of the behaviors in ADHD. Let's Give him the diagnosis of ADHD or her the diagnosis of ADHD. Here's some Ritalin or Adderall. And then teacher's happy, mom is happy, and we stop looking for the root cause mm -hmm. of what we're really seeing. And so I think that is more of an explanation because of raising awareness. Um, and so I always say we need to look deeper, broader, right? And we really need to loop in someone who specializes yeah. um, in ADHD, go beyond um, the pediatrician. Yeah, I was taking some notes when you were talking. I think <clears throat> one underneath all of that, right, is is this kind of attachment 
a lack of knowledge about attachment, you know, and just in general for children and parents and, and how important healthy attachment is. Two is just a lack of understanding of trauma and how trauma affects the brain. And I'm talking about neglect and, tra- you know, ACEs score stuff, and but also just divorce and things that we don't necessarily, we've normalized so much that we go, oh, well, that's not, you know, that's not the reason they can't focus. So those two pieces. And then, yeah, the other thing you said, which I think was beautiful, is a better assessment, like a, a more robust way of going, well, let's look systemically at this kid, you know, just because they're coming to this school and they're doing behaviors that look like impulse control issues or um, ADHD typical, you know, things, maybe they're not getting what they need at home. Maybe they have a history of neglect. Maybe they don't get attachment. Maybe they don't get attention. Maybe they, the other thing is sensory, you know, and I want to talk to you a little bit about that, but you know, there's been a huge increase in my opinion in sensory issues in kids based on epigenetic changes and just what we've put in our bodies and screens and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's another angle of like, it's sensory more than it is ADHD, but we don't even have a, we don't even know how to address ADHD and we definitely are way behind on, you know, neurodiverse kids that don't fit a certain thing that we've outlined. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And because ADHD is a collection of symptoms, right? We diagnose based on a collection of symptoms. Many of those symptoms can be caused by other things. Mm -hmm. And so if we dig deeply and look at, okay, what is this symptom? What might be a cause of this symptom? And we do that with every single one of the symptoms that's on the ADHD checklist. And we addressed several of those, um, you know, through sleep, exercise, you know, meditation, nutrition. I mean, I'd love to talk about all of those. Then what we might see is, oh, maybe this wasn't an ADHD after all. Do you, do you, yeah, go ahead. ADHD is real. hundred percent. And I don't want to, I'm an ADHD warrior myself. I get it. It's real. And so I'm not trying to negate the true diagnoses of ADHD because they are there. They are out there. Um, But I think it is overdiagnosed. Yeah, that's great. It's beautifully said. Yeah. I think one of the things that's difficult for people um, when they hear stuff is they're in one of two camps, right? They're in the camp of you know, this is ridiculous. My kid doesn't have this and I don't want to hear it. He's just impulsive and he doesn't listen. He's a bad kid or they're over on the other side. Um, and they, they legitimately have it. They want people to recognize it. And then people ignore that they have a literal chemistry issue, not a character issue. And so for either side that's listening to this, it's both, you know, and the, and the goal of our conversation, or at least my conversation with you is to give all the information that's possible so that families can have better uh, information to make a better decision and a more informed decision so that they don't do something that's unnecessary and cause more problems when they're, they're not necessarily um, there. And to remind you that the teacher at your school or even the psychiatrist who's seen your kid for 30 minutes, they might not be an expert on it. And so you need a wide variety of people looking at it. And like you said, looking at those specific each one of those, you know, checkmark diagnostic, you know, PTSD, I mean, a DSM, you know, diagnosis kind of things and go, okay, what's this from? What's this from? What's this from? And figure out if there's more to the story than that. So yeah, I think you said that. Beautifully. Yes. Yes. Um, 
as you said, I think I was going to say one of the things that's incredible to me is a lot. I've had so many people, I don't know if it's just me or you can maybe speak to this as a clinician too. I've had a lot of people come in and say, I'm borderline or I'm a narcissist or I've been diagnosed with this and I've been in therapy my whole life and you know, nothing's helped me, blah, blah, blah. And I'll say, okay, you know, I'll hold that lightly and we'll get to talking and you know, we get into the conversation a couple of sessions and they have an active addiction and then they have unresolved trauma that they've never been told is trauma and they've never dealt with. And we work through the active addiction and we work through the unresolved trauma and all of a sudden these extreme personality disorder type behaviors just go away. And I'm like, yeah, you're not borderline. You had these things. And I feel like ADHD can be the same way. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes I'm like, no, you're borderline. Like, you know, you do have trauma and you have these other things, but this diagnosis still sticks even though we've treated these things. And so I would say, is that kind of how you see ADHD is like, we need to do the work of digging into the roots and you may come up with it that it's ADHD, but a lot more times than not, there are things that you could have done beforehand or that you can do to limit the symptoms. And I know you have these pillars, so that's what I'm asking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I, what I find fascinating is that when, when we have people who are caught in a flight, flight, fight, flight or freeze cycle, right? They're, they come into our office in Hulk brain, yep. right? They've been in Hulk brain for the last 12 years because of unresolved trauma, typically, or chronic stress, mm -hmm. because we know the brain doesn't know the difference right. between acute trauma and chronic stress. Yep. Like, I'll say that again. The brain doesn't know the difference between acute trauma and trauma and traumatic acute trauma and chronic stress. Yep. It will go into fight, flight, or freeze mode, Hulk brain for both. Yep. Right. So that so physiologically, the brain responds the same way. And so it doesn't matter what your therapeutic approach is. You can't accomplish anything with someone stuck in Hulk brain. Mm -hmm. And that's true for children too. We can't teach children in Hulk brain. That's right. So they can't access their prefrontal cortex in hawk brain. Yeah. I mean, they can barely access it as children in the first place. I mean, I think that's... Well, and it's not even fully developed That's what yet, I mean, right? yeah. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. And we do know um, from brain scans that the brains of, the, of ADHD look different than a neurotypical brain, mm -hmm. that there are disrupted, disrupted connections, that there is a difference in white matter integrity. Um, that their ability to use glucose as a energy source in the brain is diminished. There yeah. are real differences in yeah. the ADHD brain. So you're fighting against that real pathology plus Hulk brain plus epigenetics plus sleep deprivation Oof. plus no exercise plus too much sugar in the diet. Yeah, walk me through. I know you're doing it right now, but so you have mm -hmm. these five pillars, right, that you want yeah. people to look at. So let's walk through those a little bit. Okay. So let's talk about, well, and when I talk about the, these five pillars, these can be contributors to ADHD, either an ADHD diagnosis or real ADHD poor functioning, right? Yep. Contributors. But then they are also five pillars of how we intervene mm. and how we treat ADHD. Right. So, so it can be, it, it's that. the inverse. So it's the negative effect on the, on the kid who either literally clinically has ADHD 
or has ADHD symptoms because these five pillars are not being tended to. And if you tend to them, it can help either an ADHD person function at a higher level, or it can show that the person doesn't have ADHD. They're just not tending to these things that are necessary. Is that exactly, that's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. So first one is sleep because either we're just too busy. And so we don't go to bed early enough or we're too busy. So we wake up too early or the schools are starting too early. There are a million reasons why we're sleep deprived Mm -hmm. or we can't fall asleep because we're stressed. And so um, all of that. And then on top of each other, right? Exactly. But sleep actually cleanses the brain. So my friend, Dr. Christina Ledbetter, who's a clinical neuroscientist, she says sleep is like putting your brain through a car wash. And so I just kind of love that analogy. But simply during the day, our brain accumulates toxins just as the result of neurotransmitter activity, right? So it accumulates toxins, including beta amyloid, by the way, which you might recognize that from Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it accumulates these toxins and sleeping actually um, allows the body to clean the brain, right? Mm-hmm. So our cerebrospinal fluid is released. It's kind of like turning on and off a faucet. So during the day, um, the faucet is turned off. And then as soon as we fall asleep, we open that faucet and the cerebrospinal fluid can rush in and clean all of those toxins out of the brain. Well, if we don't get enough sleep, that cleansing process can't happen. And hmm. those toxins accumulate in the brain. So, so if you're, yeah. Would you say that you said, tell me the beta again? Beta amyloid. Yep. Would, would research show that a lot of people who struggle with Alzheimer's got a lot of really bad sleep their whole life? Is that a, a, correl- a correlation or causation? They are currently researching that yeah. right now. I mean, uh, but that, that makes that total seem, sense. Yeah. Yes, it does. It does. Yeah, that's crazy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so so we have to sleep um, so that we can get rid of those toxins that accumulate every day in the brain. Yeah, and I don't think so, people realize how t- how chronically tired everybody is and what that's yeah. doing to their brain and their bodies for sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't know any clients who say they sleep enough. Like any of the hundreds of people that we see and thousands of people we see in our clinics, like very few people are like, yeah, I get, you know, eight hours of sleep a night. Yeah. It's a mess. Well, and I'll tell you, Like before I knew this, so I used to teach community college and community college um, students are typically non-traditional. They're adults, right? They already have jobs and kids. And um, anyway, I I would have students who'd say, like, I just don't have enough time to get this done. And you know what my suggestion would be? Go to bed an hour later or get up an hour earlier to get your homework done. Mm. Really? Yeah. I mean... I just didn't know, right? And mm-hmm. you don't know what you don't know. Oh, lots of people. I apologize say they can... to all of my past <laughs> students who I told to give up an you hour. Get less sleep. Yep. <laughs> I was listening to something the other day, and it said, you know, people people say that they can, you know, lots of people are like, oh, I can function on four or five hours, and I've said that, like, I and I can function better than some people, my wife and, and specifically with less sleep. Um, I think. I heard somebody, the research said though the other day, it's like uh, less people than have a gold medal can function on less than like seven hours of sleep or something. I can't remember what the stat was, something like that. It's like, you know, people think, oh yeah, I can do less than seven and I'm fine. And then they were saying, if you, if you 
sleep less than seven hours a day for like a week, it's like uh, like you're walking around. God, what was the thing? Do you know that that phrase? Uh-uh. It's it's something like you know you. It's like you. Oh, it's like you didn't sleep for forty eight hours. So if you if you sleep less than seven hours within like a week, then then it's like you're walking around and, and you're functioning at a level as if you didn't sleep for forty eight hours straight. And I was just wow. like, man, that's everybody all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So sleep. All right. So we beat that. So we got to sleep. Yeah. Right. We got to sleep. So um, that is the first thing that I ask parents when they are suspecting ADHD in their child is talk to me about how often they sleep, how mm-hmm. much they sleep. First thing I ask. And then for a child who does have ADHD, that's the first thing I suggest. They need to get more sleep. Yep. Okay. Um, the next one is nutrition. So Americans eat way too much sugar and we know, right? It's very common knowledge now that sugar is inflammatory, right? Sugar causes inflammation in the body. Yes. Well, the brain is part of the body. And so if your body's inflamed, so is your brain. Yeah. So how can we expect our brains to function optimally? on sugar. Simple as that. Yeah, we can't. Yeah. Dr. Mandy Crow, who works with us, she does a whole thing on sugar and how awful it is. It's like, Oh my goodness. It's overwhelming when you start to look at like how much sugar is in everything, yeah. you know? And yeah. And, and fruit is included in this. I know. Right. It's not, so right, you get some like, well, normal, fruit. yeah, you get some normal sugar and then you drink a do, you know, seven Dr. Peppers and, you know, eat, a honey bun and I mean it's it's yeah anyway I can go on a tangent but you yeah. know it's like these kids yeah. get up in the morning with no sleep they eat you know fruity pebbles for breakfast and then they get to school and they eat you know whatever candy and whatever snacks they have there and then the teachers wonder why they can't function at 9 30. Right right and so this whole I'm not sitting here saying like it, back in the 80s they were like don't give your ADHD kid sugar because it'll make them more hyper right okay, that is not what I'm saying What I'm saying is sugar inflames the body and inflames the brain. And so your poor child's brain is inflamed. Do we want our child's brain to be inflamed? No. Do we want our brain to be inflamed? No. Am I telling um, people to give up sugar 100%? No, because that's not realistic. Mm -hmm. My encouragement is to follow a 90-10 rule. 90% of the time, eliminate sugars. 10% of the time, have a treat. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then it doesn't feel like you're completely deprived. Right. But I'm not talking about having a cheat day. Right. Where we get up and drink Dr. Pepper for breakfast and then continue to right. eat sugar the entire day. What I'm saying is if you want dessert on Saturday night, have dessert on Saturday night. Yeah. 90, 10 rule. And D- then along just don't with don't have dessert for breakfast, lunch and dinner every day of the week. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then also along the nutrition, um, There is a lot of research that says that omega-3 fatty acids are beneficial for the brain, particularly the ADHD brain. And so um, I always encourage people to look at that research um, and then, you know, talk to their doctors about supplementing with omega-3s. And doing a vitamin. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then there's also research on the neurological manifestations of gluten. And so we know that... um, people with gluten intolerance and people with celiac disease, I am one of them, 
um, cannot eat gluten. Um, mm-hmm. But there's research to suggest that uh, gluten isn't good for any brain. Yeah. Not just people with gluten sensitivities. Have you allergies. looked? Have you looked into MTHFR? Oh yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. And you want to talk about epigenetics? We absolutely can. Yeah. Um, but people who have um, homozygous 677 um, MTHFR, with the, which is um, an enzyme that actually helps our bodies detox. And so if you have a, a double mutation of the MTHFR um, gene, methylene tetrahyde, yeah. I won't say, say what we right? call it, but that, that yeah. You, yeah, uh-huh, I know. Just <laughs> anyway, JC again, and I both have it. So, well, so. I have, I have homozygous six, seven, seven, two mutations. Yep. Uh, so my, my, um, ability to detox works at about 30%, mm-hmm. I think, uh, with that. And so we eat all organic because can you, you talk detox. just for a second? So mm-hmm. for people listening, you know, uh, when we had our first kids, they both have food allergies. They both reacted really terrible to, um, well, no, the first one reacted very terrible to vaccines. Um, we went through all of the sleep, all these situations. And then we did the you know research and studied and realized that both JC and I have MTHFR. We passed that to them. That's what's causing these kind of what they call second tier disorders. And so, yeah, like red 40, you know, things that they just cannot process. And that just causes so many problems. Can you just give a just general scientific overview of why people should look into that and how that's affecting things that they probably just have never even thought about. So there's a very high um, association between um, the a double MTHFR mutation and neurodevelopmental disorders. So we see kids with a, a homozygous or a compound heterozygous, which means you would have one of the 1298 mutation and one of the 677 mutation, um, the high uh, percentages of ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, um, those are the two main ones. Mm -hmm. So um, the body has a system, it's called methylation, and it is this cycle. (laughs) And it is just this cycle of the body being able to use you know, B12 and methionine and uh, yeah, I won't even get into the entire cycle, but it helps our bodies detox things that don't belong in our bodies that are coming from the environment. So whether that's exposure to pesticides in non-organic foods, whether that's um, food dyes, like you said, um, anesthesia, from surgeries or dental work. Mm-hmm. Um, so people with a compound mutation of MTHFR cannot have nitrous oxide, which dentists use in pediatric dentistry all the time. What happens time. with that? Because I've not heard that. And I'm like king of like, dope me up with that stuff. So what, what happens? Okay, so this is a big deal. Um, so what happens is um, ex- people with a a double mutation in MTHFR, so it's Mm -hmm. called MTHFR deficiency, when they're exposed to nitrous oxide, it raises homocysteine levels. Okay. And high homocysteine can lead to blood clots. Okay. Interesting. So, right. And so that's why um, I think 
That's well, that's one of the reasons why I think it's important for everybody to get tested from TGFR. There are adjuvants and vaccines, right, that our bodies have to detox yeah. when we when we get a flu shot, when we get any vaccine. And so an adjuvant is something that they add to the vaccine to just help it be absorbed by the body better, mm -hmm. right? It's not actually the the vac it's not actually the the main ingredient, it's what they add. It, it could be thimerosal, a preservative um, in a vaccine. So people who have this mutation can't detox those vaccine adjuvants. Mm -hmm. And so I think everybody ought to be tested from TGFR at birth, at birth, yeah. because then a parent can be better informed about vaccines yeah grady got right? like puke i mean he was like 106 fever he had green bile like it was insane after his first set of vaccines and i mean later we realized why that was and what was going on but yeah as our i think that's the sad part as as things have changed so radically over the not that th these issues haven't always existed but they've been so minor because of our you know change in culture and what we eat in our diets and all those kind of things but like those are so much more common things that I think the average person is dealing with. They just aren't even looking at because we have, we're not having these conversations. So this is, I'm excited. This is beautiful coming out. Cause I think, you know, a lot of people yeah. listening need to hear, like, it's an easy test. You just go check, you know, like, and it can change your life. Absolutely. And, and MTHFR, it's an enzyme that that's all it is. It's an enzyme right. that helps break these things down. And so, um, yeah, absolutely. Easy test. You can do a spit in a tube test or a blood test and find out. Now, most people have one mutation. Mm -hmm. One mutation is not the problem. It's when you have two. Right. It's when you have two. Um, so, yes. So that's part of nutrition is knowing. Um, well, that's part of I don't know which pillar to put that in. Clint. I know that, that was why I was asking you. Cause I was like, it, yeah. it kind of goes with all of them. It kind of does. Um, so yeah, uh, important to know and to know again, that there is a high association between a double mutation and a neurodevelopmental uh, diagnosis. Yep. And so if we can reduce exposure to toxins and things that the body can't detox, if you have that mutation, and um, that can help reduce some of the neurodevelopmental uh, diagnostic symptoms that we see. Absolutely. As well. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, okay. Number three is exercise. Mm. So aerobic exercise increases something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor. And that is a protein that is like miracle grow for the brain. And so we want as much BDNF as possible, right? Especially as kids while our brains are developing. Um, but it's also great for adults too, because we know that neurogenesis is still occurring in the hippocampus throughout the life, like yeah. lifespan, right? We don't stop um, producing new neurons and new neural connections. And we need BDNF for that to happen. So we know that aerobic activity increases the production of BDNF, mm. which helps our brain function better. Which is so why kids need to be playing. They need to be playing. Absolutely. And, you know, when I tell adults this, hey, you need to exercise, you need to look at your nutrition. When they're within a normal weight range, they really don't respond favorably to these suggestions. Yeah, because they're I, just I thinking about diet. it from shape. I don't need to yeah. exercise. Absolutely. And I have to say, you're eating for your brain and you're moving for your brain. This has nothing to do with the size of your body. Mm. And I try not to even use the word diet 
I try to say nutrition, right? Right. Whatever you're putting in your mouth is going to impact your brain. And, and a lot of things cross the blood brain barrier, like something like 70% of neurotransmitters are produced in the gut, not in the brain. Yeah, that's wild. So uh, of course, what we eat is going to impact neurotransmitter function, right? So whether we're producing enough neurotransmitters, whether, you know, the catching neuron can absorb that next, you know, that, uh, that neurotransmitter, we don't know exactly what's happening in the ADHD brain. Um, but we do know that, but that neurotransmitter function is impacted. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's do what we can nutritionally. Um, and then with exercise yep. for their brains. All right. Uh, next pillar is um, mindfulness, grounding, stress management um, exercises. So I talked a little bit about that chronic stress. And believe me, your children are chronically stressed. Mm -hmm. It's the nature of the way schools function. It's the nature of having to balance school school performance, extracurriculars, sports, music, 100%. drama, whatever. I mean, you just wake up in. that way. I mean, literally the day starts for these kids by let's go get your shoes on. We got to go hurry up, get your stuff. Did you have this? Do you have that? Come on, stop giving, you know, get off your brother. You know I mean? It's just like, it's not a slow, calm, let's meditate. Let's be mindful. Let's have a moment. You know, I mean, that's what we try to do at home. Um, and that's been a huge shift over the last couple of years because of a lot of this you know, stuff that I'm learning, but it's like, right. that's so hard to do every day. You know, it's just so, so difficult when they, our American culture is what it is. Absolutely. And you cannot wait until your child is in Hulk brain to say, breathe. No, these have to be practices that we teach our children yeah. and we have to spend 10 minutes in the morning. We have to spend 10 minutes in the evening doing mindfulness and grounding and breathing exercises so that they can reset their nervous systems. Yeah. Right. So we got to break that fight, flight or freeze cycle as often as possible, because when we do well, what what's happening is that their bodies are releasing adrenaline and cortisol as, in response to this chronic stress. So that cortisol is just coursing through their coursing through their veins. Mm -hmm. Right. Their hippocampus is shrinking. They're in Hulk mode. They can't access their prefrontal cortex. And so we have to break that cycle as much as possible to kind of build resilience, lower the cortisol levels. If you think about cortisol as like being in a bucket, right? And so as the bucket is overflowing, right, they turn into fight, flight, or freeze, hawk mode, brain. And then even if they just come down a little bit from that, it only takes a tiny bit of stress to fill that bucket back up. Yep. So if we can do 10 minutes of mindfulness, grounding, breathing exercises in the morning and the evening, we can keep that cortisol bucket low. Yeah. I love right? So then it takes more to throw us into Hulk mode. Yep. That's good. Yeah. I mean, you're building equity, right? You're like, you're building this kind of healthy equity that you can lean into so that you're at a three all day versus being at a seven all day. And then one thing pushes you over the edge. Yes. It's good. Uh, yes. I love Dan exactly Siegel, right. Siegel. Dr. Dan Siegel does the like hand model of like blowing your top. Have you seen that? Um, no, I have his book, but I can't recall the diagram. And so he, well, he just does your hand. And, and so I've been using it. Okay. So you just say, this is your brain and, and this is your prefrontal. And so when you, so if you can't see it, I'm doing a hand thing. You'll just listen to it. Uh, but your prefrontal starts to twitch out and then you blow your top. And so now your amygdala is in charge. Your hippocampus is in charge. You know, all these things are in charge. 
and now you can't think, you can't function. And so you got to get your prefrontal cortex to come back online and, and kind of wrap over and be in charge again. Um, and so we do that. I'll do that a lot with my kids. I'm like, okay, I'll hold my hand up. I'm like, you're, you know, it feels like you're about to blow your top. What do we need to let's breathe? Let's, let's walk around. You need to go run outside, you know, like just all of these things. It's like, what do we need to eat? That's usually the, the answer to most of the problems in my house, wife included. Are you hungry? You know, like, <laughs> like it's, yeah. three, it's three o'clock It's snack time. You haven't had a snack. No wonder you're melting down. And that's more the children, uh, you know, about yeah. something, you know, and it's like, why are you so crazy right now? five-year-old and then I'm like oh it's three you need to eat you know like you you've you've got to eat some get some calories yeah yep. yeah and so there's nothing magical um about specific mindfulness breathing grounding exercises literally you can google mindfulness exercises for kids there are some cool card decks yep I got that you one. can just order yep. yeah that you can order on amazon and um, I love like the cbt and dbt card decks because they're full of um mindfulness exercises um and so anyway, those are everywhere. They're ubiquitous, um, easy to find. Uh, the important thing to know is that you have to practice those when you're calm mm -hmm. um, in order for you to be able to access them when you have blown your top. That's good. If you wait, you can't access them. You're, you just, you just want, your amygdala will hijack your prefrontal cortex. You won't remember how to breathe. You won't remember to say five things that I can see, four things I can hear, three things I can touch. Right. And so, um, just practice those with your kids, make a game out of it, talk about the importance, um, do it yourself, model that with your children so that they see everybody should be doing that, right? Everybody at any time, every trauma therapist knows that you should have 15 to 20 exercises in your bank um, of exercises that you should be doing um, all the time. We all need it. Like we all need oh, it. Oh yeah. The and, um, the breathing, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say the breath work thing is so important and people feel like it's such a cheesy, you know, therapeutic thing, but you know, what all of these things do is they get you in your body. You know, they get you in the moment. They get your, your nervous systems aligned and calm. And, and um, I love that God, um, you know, he says, I am, not I was or I will be, although he is all of those things. Right. He, he wants to be in the present with us. He wants to be in the moment with us. He wants us to be in the moment. And um, so it's cool that the word ruach is the Hebrew word for like the breath of life that God breathed into us and into Adam and Eve. And and so it's like when we breathe, we're, we're literally breathing in God's essence. That's what sustains us, you know? And so it's, I don't know. I just think it's a cool, all of this stuff is like God designed in a beautiful way and it all makes sense. Um, so anyway. Yes. That our bodies are designed, right. To be able to be reset like this. Hey, if we sleep, we're going to function better. If we put things into our body that are from nature, we're going to function better, right? Like all of these things. I mean, God just did this beautifully. I mean, so um, the important thing about breathing is to know that the exhale is more important than the inhale. Mm -hmm. So uh, just make it an extended exhale. Um, even a long sigh will reset the nervous system. Yeah. Anything you can do to vibrate the <clears throat> vagus nerve, um, you know, by doing like a low pitched foghorn exhale, like um, Dr. Amy Apigian uses the word vu. Mm. And so if you exhale saying vu, kind of at a foghorn, yeah. um, that'll vibrate that vagus nerve, lower your heart rate, lower your blood pressure, kind of reset that nervous system. Um, anyway, so we have one more pillar That's that good. I really want to talk about. Okay. Let me, let me say this one last thing. Uh, well, two things. One, when we do a lot of equine therapy with people, the horse will 
and that's when it lets you know that it's calming and it's regulating. And so it's the same thing. That's beautiful. And then two, have you done any research on, um, or read anything recently on, uh, tongue and lip ties and how that relates to carbon dioxide and, uh, vagal nerve by being able to touch the top of your mouth? No. Oh my goodness. So we just took our kids to Dallas because they both had tongue and lip ties when they were little. Um, which is also a part of the whole MTHFR and gene mutation stuff. And uh, anyway, so we go to this dentist and they were showing us how, well, both of the boys' ties have come back. We didn't know that. And so Grady cannot even touch the roof of his mouth with his tongue. And so because he hasn't been able to touch the roof of his mouth, he's not getting vagal nerve connection to self-soothe, to get oxygen in the way that he's supposed to, and to also widen his palate so that his jaws and his teeth can come in. And I'm like, this is insane. So anyway, I I, have wow. a, I want her to come on the podcast and talk about all that. But it's, I just didn't know anything about that. And so I'm like, yeah, if he can't, you know, when you touch the, if you think about it, like right now, can you touch the top of your mouth with your tongue? If you can't, then you can't do a lot of the things you need to do to calm your nervous system down, to breathe in the proper way, all those kind of things. So that's another thing that I think a lot of people miss with their kids if they're having sleep problems or sensory issues is they may have a tongue tie. It's not allowing them to reach the top of their mouth that does a lot of things that needs to happen. Wow, I'm fascinated. I have to go read about it. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Okay, fifth pillar. All right, fifth pillar. And this is where, this is the space that I function in, obviously, at Learning RX, is um, cognitive stimulation, executive function training, cognitive training. Right. And so we did this really big research study uh, back in 2015, 2016, where we looked at cognitive profiles of people with ADHD across the lifespan. And so uh, over 4,000 people, that, that was our sample size, huge study. And so we plotted um, across a graph, across the lifespan, um, functioning on every major cognitive skill that makes up an IQ test. So working memory, long-term memory, processing speed, visual processing, auditory processing, logic and reasoning and attention. Okay. So we plotted these. And what we found across the lifespan is that attention was not the most deficient skill in ADHD. Mm. What was? I'll say it again. Attention was not the weakest skill in ADHD. Working memory, long-term memory, and processing speed were more deficient mm. across the lifespan in ADHD than attention. And so interventions for ADHD that are targeting attention only are missing the boat wow. on what's really happening cognitively in the ADHD brain. That makes so, so much the, sense though, because they focus so much on kids and in the society that we live in their, their ability to, to focus or do the task over all the other things that are important. Yes. Oh, and so man. they just say, Oh, they can't pay attention. It's attention deficit disorder. Well, first of all, let me tell you that ADHD is not a, a deficit of attention. <laughs> we pay focus. attention to everything. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. problem is we can't rack and stack priority, uh, right? So, so we everything is important. We pay attention to everything. So or it's nothing not at all, a deficit. right? Oh, well, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You chase three squirrels, they all get away. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what we need in that ADHD brain is to remediate those weak cognitive skills. That's and good. so a, because remember I said that brain imaging shows us that there is, um, 
irregularity in the connections with the prefrontal cortex and the rest of the brain. Mm -hmm. And so cognitive training can help strengthen those connections, reestablish those connections. And so um, any type of cognitive stimulation is great, um, but an intense targeted uh, one-on-one, like delivered by a human um, cognitive training will really get the biggest impact um, to help those kids um, be able to process information more efficiently, uh, remember things, um, you know, work at a pace commensurate with their age. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we do. And so we remediate those cognitive skills that um, are really the root cause of what we're seeing in the classroom in those ADHD brains. Yeah, that's so good. I mean, that's so good for people to listen to and hear because that is such an important, uh, I think, thing we're missing as a society when it comes to focusing on ADHD in the wrong ways. And I think the pillars are super helpful. So I'm going to go over those one more time for people. So one, sleep. And just like everything, there are going to be things you need to change in your life to be able to get the sleep you need. So it's not going to be, we understand it's not easy. It's not just like go home starting today and just sleep more. There's a million things going on for why we can't sleep. Those things have to be addressed Two, diet, nutrition, sugar, especially omega-3 fatty acids, possibly looking at gluten and somewhere within this looking at MTHFR and looking at gene mutations and just doing a good robust panel for yourself to say, where am I? What do I have going on? And then how do the things that I'm taking into my body and, and what I'm, and I'm exposing myself to, how are those affecting me specifically? Three exercise, you know, making sure you're doing something with your body, getting up and stretching, going for walks, going for runs, doing jujitsu, doing the rower, you know, whatever it is, swimming, getting those things, BDNFP. What was the last thing? BDNF. Nope, BDNF. Oh, BDNF. Okay. Oh, that's a slash. Yeah. Um, four, mindfulness, grounding, stress relieving things, uh, and then breathing. And then five, doing some work on your cognition, like getting with somebody who can help you to exercise your brain, train your brain, work it out like the muscle that it is so that it can get stronger, it can get better, and it can work at a more functioning level. You got it. You nailed it. And I think, too, just knowing that um, there are real differences in the ADHD brain compared to a neurotypical brain. And so hopefully that builds a little bit of empathy, mm-hmm. right? So that we know that a child's behavior is communicating that they're missing something in these five pillars, right? Like my behavior is a result of me not getting enough sleep plus me not knowing how to get into Bruce Banner brain rather than Hulk brain, yeah. right? Like, uh, like it, all behavior is communicating something to us. And so connection is the number one buffer against mental health crisis. Mm-hmm. And so if we can connect first with our child, with our spouse, whoever it is that's struggling and say, I'm here for you, let me help you dig into like what might be missing um, that I can help you remediate yeah, that's amazing. yeah i know you got a hard stop in five minutes but i'd love to hear your thoughts well i'm going to just have you back in like six months but we'll talk about um i'd love to hear about how you know screens over the last five to six years have have changed that and overstimulation and all those kind of things because i mean obviously if you just look at the pillars screens wreck all of that 
you know, you can't be on TikTok and uh, exercise, be mindful, you know, have good cognition, sleep, you know. Right. It it screens wreck a lot of those pillars, knock them over, and you know. Oof. So anyway, thank you so much for coming on here. I hope you have a wonderful day. Um, let let me. Uh, can you tell me the people listening what your ats are and like what your what they can go to to find your information? Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you want more information about brain training, and you can actually read all of our brain training research, it is peer reviewed. Um, you can go to learningrx.com. Um, you can click find a center and that would uh, get you to the closest one or you can call the 800 number and they can uh, work that out with you. Um, my um, podcast is Brainy Moms. And so that's at thebrainymoms.com and we're on every social media platform at The Brainy Moms. It's a great podcast. On, thank you. Uh, you've been on it twice. That's right. Um, you can find me on Facebook and LinkedIn at Amy Lawson Moore. And uh, my website is amymorephd.com. Awesome. And you did a TED Talk. And so you can check her TED Talk out on YouTube. It was great. Um, yep. That's another way we connected. Got a lot of connections, Dr. Amy. We do. Thank you we so much that. for being who you are and doing what you do. Thank you for advocating for people and for, you know, putting your life work into something that I think is helping all of us, helping our world in a way that is so... Um, small in, a, in the sense that nobody's paying attention to it and so large in the way that it's affecting all of us and our family and our friends and our kids and so thank you for the countless hours of research and work and learning and effort and sacrifice that you've made um, I know you probably don't hear that enough so I just wanted to say that thank you absolutely thanks Clint thanks guys for listening God bless and have a good week <laughs>